1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. We have a theme of suffering and hope, suffering and hope, suffering and hope all through 1 Peter. Our great hope, Jesus Christ triumphant. If you would, stand for reading of the Word of God, but I want you to realize something. We're going to go through a couple verses today that are very controversial, are viewed differently by different people throughout the church, and so we'll try to elucidate, clarify as best we can what these scriptures are saying. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into, the, into heaven and at the right hand of, of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. So as you know by now, the theme of 1 Peter is strength and comfort in suffering. We have a God that can identify with us wherever we're at in our, in our suffering, in our misery. Now, last week we talked about when suffering comes to your house. Remember, there will be a time when it will come to your house. There is hope. There is hope. And there are two main things that we got out of our teaching from last week, or what I hoped you got out of it. One of the things that you are to consider yourself blessed, blessed when you suffer. And remember, I put the big thing up there, what? What do you mean by that? How can that be possible? Well, because of what it produces. In 3.14, we read these words, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. That word is markarios, fully satisfied. Why? Because in James chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we see that it produces patience or perseverance, hupomone. We are able to deal with the things that come our way. God gives us supernatural strength to deal with it. But it also makes us perfect, complete, lacking nothing. We become mature. We become mature through suffering. Look, nobody makes it to, the, to maturity in Christendom unless they've suffered to some extent. That's the pitiful thing about humans. We, we learn through suffering. Don't you, I, I'm in the club right now that I want to say, Lord, I want to learn. Teach me. Teach me. I, I'm, I've suffered enough. I would like to learn on the, on, the, on the scale where I don't have to go down that road. Uh, but he knows me better than I know me, so he knows what I need. So we, 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 we become mature through suffering. Now, those who become mature through suffering, when the trial comes, turn to God. Turn to God. Uh, don't get angry with God. They don't turn from God and shake their fist at God. Look at the, you can, it's okay when you're suffering to say, hey, I don't understand this. That's okay. I don't like this. Job didn't like it. Job didn't understand it. I'm hurting. Let's be honest. I'm hurting. This is discouraging. But Lord, somehow, some way, I trust you. I trust you through this thing. I know that you're going to bring me through it. And I stand on Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work for good. It doesn't say all things are good. He brings good out of it. Brings good out of it. Psalm 115.3 says this. I love this. Our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. Remember that. Our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. So we learned about that we're blessed in suffering, but the second thing we learn is that there's an opportunity to defend the faith when we're suffering, an apologia. And the whole thing here is written, when we give an apology for the faith, it's written in the context of suffering and people watching you go through it. How are you handling this? Are you a witness for our Lord or are you not? An and it can be a nonverbal apologia, that people are watching your life and wondering, how in the world are they doing that? And when they come up to you and ask you, it's your opportunity to say, the God of hope is with me. The God of hope is with me. Remember, hope is the earnest expectation that something good is going to happen. That's how we focus. Our focus is on something good. God will bring something good out of this. That is what our hope is in. Now, remember, you have Jesus as your solid foundation. Jesus is the one that our life is built on. If your foundation is something other than Jesus, remember we use the illustration in 
Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49, about your house being built on the rock or your house being built on the sand. And we talked about sandcastle Christianity. The two houses looked exactly the same. The two, the two looked like they were both solid in their construction. But when the trial came, the one on the rock is the one that stood. And when the one on the sand, it crumbled. It crumbled. And oftentimes the crumblers, the crumbling houses, blame God, blame people, blame everyone, blame everything. Instead of drawing strength from God, they pull away from God. That is the exact opposite thing that you want to do. You want to turn to God in your time of distress. Those are the folks built on the rock. Turn to God. Turn to God. The God of hope is with us. And then we finish with Romans 15, 13. A great verse to memorize. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How much joy and peace? All joy and peace as you trust in him. That's how you have all joy and peace, as you trust in him through the, through the trial so that you may, watch this, overflow with hope. Remember, I made a big emphasis out of this. Not a little itsy-bitsy, teensy-weensy hope. Oh, I hope this happens. No, overflow with hope, knowing that our God is with us, knowing that he's going to produce something good from this. Overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this by wishing and hoping. You, you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, realizing our hope is in him, not in our wishing and hoping. Now, this week, our great hope is Jesus Christ triumphant. Now, we know that Jesus Christ is triumphant over every king that ever existed on this earth. Nebuchadnezzar being the greatest on down. Every president, every power and principalities in the heavenlies, our God is triumphant over. Everything created, our God reigns. That's what we're going to be talking about this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to your word. Help us to learn today things that we may not know. And what we learn, help us to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there's a caution here. This is a difficult text, particularly when we're talking about Jesus speaking to the, to the spirits in prison. What does that mean? And also the part about baptism. It's almost like there's baptismal regeneration in this verse, but let's be very careful and let's break this down as we go forward. So Luther, when he was looking at these verses, he didn't know what they meant and he just ignored them. There's a difficult verses and difficult to, to, to ferret through. Moriel Ministry says this, according to most of the well-known prosperity gospel teachers, now listen to this. This would be a false view of this. A false view of this. So according to prosperity teachers, Jesus did not complete his work of redemption on the cross. He took upon himself the nature of Satan. He went to hell and suffered there for three days in torment. Then Jesus was born again in hell. After that, he defeated the devil and returned to the Father. Now this is what a lot in the in the Word faith movement believe. This would be Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Joyce Meyer, that whole group of folks, Fred Price and those guys. The truth is this. Clearly, Jesus made atonement for our sins upon the cross, not hell. How do we know that? Because Jesus said something on the cross that was very, very important. Remember what he said? To tell us die. What, what does that mean? It is finished. The redemptive price was paid. Redemption is Paid in full, delivered out of the slave market of sin. Paid in full. Paid in full. That's what, our, that's what our God did. Paid in full. What was finished was God's wrath was poured upon on Jesus Christ. That was we should have gotten. We should have gotten, but it was poured upon Jesus. Now that the debt has been paid in full, Christ could pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was no fight in hell. They use this verse to say that Satan was jumping all over Jesus and the redemption was finished in hell. That is a false teaching. We would actually call that heretical. Heretical, okay? Now, the truth be known, when you talk about the atonement, when you talk about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, just a little bit of review for us. Something we must know about Jesus Christ triumphant. No other world religion has a Savior. None. No Islam, no Hindu, no Buddha, no nothing. Only Christianity has a Savior that died for sins. Only Christians have their sin debt paid. No other way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. 
All other religions are working their way to God, trying to do something to ingratiate themselves to God. If I just do more, if I just knock on another door, if I just say more prayers towards Mecca, if I just do, if I just do, if I just do. And Christianity is by grace, you are saved through faith, not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. It is a free gift that God gives us. Jesus' work was done on the cross on our behalf. He substituted in our place. He redeemed us. He paid the ransom price for a slave that was us. He purchased us out of the slave market of sin. Christianity, folks, is the only true religion. Jesus said so. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. First uh, Timothy 2, 5, there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, that's Jesus Christ. And then we find in Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no other, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It's in no other. And because we have a triumphant Jesus, Jesus has given us a triumphant message to give the world. And he told us very specifically in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. And then he says, lo, I am with you always to accomplish the mission. Though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Speaking to us, we have a triumphant Jesus, a triumphant Jesus. Our triumphant Christ has given us this mission, and all of us must know and transfer this mission to the world that we live in. In verse 18, Jesus Christ triumphant, his death and resurrection. Let's read it. For Christ also suffered, how many times for sins? Once for sins. The just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, this verse encapsulates the gospel message. Christ's death was a once-for-all transaction. A once-for-all transaction. Jesus died that all may live. The gospel message is that all can be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, this, this verse explains the death of Christ so clearly that it leaves the hearer without excuse. Without excuse. Christ died once for sins. Man is sinful, man is guilty, man needs a sin bearer. Man disobeys God, trespasses, breaks God's law, curses God. Remember the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It is a very sacred name. You don't use his name casually. And then rebelling against God. Oftentimes people choose to go their own way, do their own thing. I'm going to do my thing. When, as soon as you say that, check your spirit. Am I doing the right thing? My own thing is usually the wrong thing. My own thing. Man has transgressed the law of God. They have broken the law of God, and when the law has been broken, a penalty has to be paid, and it is the death penalty. The death penalty. Man is separated from God forever. Because God is perfect, he cannot be in the presence of sin. So something has to happen to man's sin, and we've just talked about it. Jesus came and took mankind's sin debt. Jesus died for our sins. He took the sin and guilt of man upon himself. He bore the judgment and punishment for man. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And now God looks at those who believe. For those who say, yes, Jesus, I receive the gift that you have given us. I receive the gift. You are declared righteous. Isn't that amazing? Look at your life. Are you righteous? No. No, you're declared righteous. It's a declaration. It's, a, it's an accounting term. You are declared righteous. Not that you're righteous. You have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now God looks at you how? Just like his son. His righteousness is credited to us. It's called justification. His death never has to be repeated. Let me say that again. His death never has to be repeated. It was once for all. Once for all. God is a life giver. God is a life giver. Once for all, his death, burial, and resurrection for all of humanity. You just have to believe and receive the gift. Verse 19 and 20. Jesus Christ triumphant is proclaimed. Now, this is the controversial verse. So please bear with me. 
I'm going to share with you several deductions. This isn't said, but inferred, okay? So you can take it or leave it, but let me just, you know, try to develop it, okay? So 19 and 20. By whom also he went and preached. So we know that he died, and we know that he went someplace right after his death. He preached to the spirits in prison, so we know that that happened, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So something happened in the days of Noah, which we are going to elucidate in just a second. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through the water. Now remember, the ark is a picture of salvation. Eight people got into the ark. How many could have gotten into the ark? As many as would believe, but they didn't get into the ark, so they weren't saved. Now, let's develop this. Now, we believe, or at least I believe, that this text is talking about Jesus went and spoke to the spirits in prison, that he went into the grave. He went into what is called Hades in the Greek or Sheol in the Hebrew, and it is simply the abode of departed spirits. That's where the departed spirits are. Now, presumably, this is what happened there, explaining them to the mystery of the cross. To the wicked there, Peter mentions the angels in change who sinned in the days of Noah. And to the righteous, Christ took those who had been waiting with Abraham. He took those people with him to heaven when he ascended. So that's the basic premise, okay? That's the basic premise. Now, the question that I have for you before I develop that is this. This question, what really happens when we die? What really happens when we take our last breath? And everyone is, goes through this, okay? This is, this is not something that only a few do. It is absolutely universal. All of us will die. When your body is placed in the grave or when it is cremated, your soul and your spirit will live on. All humans are eternal beings, it just depends where your eternity is going to be spent, in heaven with God or separated from God in what is traditionally called hell, but it will actually be the lake of fire, which is the eternal abode of the lost, okay? So I have a picture here that I want to put up on the screen. It is a picture of Hades and Sheol. That's Abraham's bosom. That is also called paradise. There is a great gulf, according to Luke 16, which we'll talk about in just a second, between Abraham's bosom or paradise and torment. There is also, in the grave, Tartarus, the abyss, the bottomless pit. We are talking about Tartarus today in our text, but there's also the abyss, the bottomless pit, or the abuso. This is where the, the demonic angels exist. And more on that in just a second. So, prior to the resurrection, Sheol and Hades were divided into paradise, torment, and Tartarus, those three areas. So paradise is the holding area for believers. All people who believed in God, all people who believed that there was someone coming, looking forward to the cross, when they died, they went into the paradise section. For those who didn't, they went into torment. They went into torment. And again, Tartarus is the place where fallen angels reside. Fallen angels reside. Now, Luke 16, 19 through 33 is our proof text for this. And, it's, and I'll just say this very quickly because most people are familiar with it, but there was a rich man that died and there was Lazarus that died. They both go to their eternal abode. One of them goes to paradise and one of them goes to torment. Lazarus goes to paradise or goes to Abraham's bosom. Now notice how he's carried there in verse 22, Luke 16, 22. So it was that the beggar died, Lazarus, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, this is going to be very important in just a second because I believe that when you pass, you have an angelic escort into the presence of God. I, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I've shared this before. When my brother died, just before he died, he was talking about the guy that was in the corner. And who was that, Rick? And I tried to, I remember I tried to get it out of him and he passed out again. I'm shaking him. Don't go. Don't, not, come on. Not, just tell me who that guy is. What does he look like? I want to know. But he didn't share with me. But he had that experience, okay? So I believe that they're, they're, you, get a, you get a transport. So there's a good place and there's a bad place. Now, the guy that was in the bad place, what did he want to do? Tell all of his brothers, don't come here. Whatever you do, Abraham, tell them. And what did Abraham say? Always oh, says this, if they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the word of God, even though someone raises from the dead, they won't believe it. You have to believe this word. You have to believe what Moses and the prophets said. You have to believe the written word. That's what he's focusing on. Now, that's the paradise torment section. Well, what about Tartarus? Well, Tartarus is described in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, now these were the demons who sinned, but cast them down to hell, that is Tartarus, the darkest of hell, to be reserved for judgment. Now, who were these guys? Well, Jude, verse 6, tells us who they were. And the angels, in Jude, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain. They cohabitated with women in Genesis, chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, whose offspring was the Nephilim. Okay? They left their domain. They cohabitated with them, but left, and, but left their abode. See, God has specific instructions and guidelines that the demonic realm cannot transgress. If they do, they are sequestered. These guys were so bad, they are in Tartarus, forever sequestered. The abyss, the bottomless pit, the abuso, seems to be a temporary holding spot where some of them go and then are released after they've served some time, much like our prison system. So he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the day of judgment on that great day. So you have the three places. Fallen angels reside at Tartarus. Abraham's bosom, pre-resurrected Old Testament saint resides in, in Abraham's bosom, and the non-believers are in torment. Now that picture should be solidified in your mind. Those places existed. Now, why were the Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom? It is because the redemptive price had not been paid yet. They still were not under the blood of the Lord Jesus. The sacrifice had not been given. Once the sacrifice was given, then paradise was emptied. Follow along with me. Now, when Jesus goes down into the grave, what does he talk about? And again, this is a deduction. This is an inference based upon the minimal information that we have here. You can accept it or not. Just know that he went into the grave and he said something to these folks. That's all we know, okay? But this is a deduction. Now, what Jesus said to the believers in paradise, well, we know that he preached, heralds the truth, okay? And remember what he said to the thief on the cross in Luke 24, 33. To the thief on the cross, he says, this day you shall be with me in paradise. That's exactly where the, the believing thief went, and that's where Jesus went. And, that's where, and I believe that Jesus spoke to those people in paradise, in paradise because of that scripture. And what is he saying? Well, victory is secured. Your sins are paid in full. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10, gives us a little, another little peek into what's going on here. Another little peek. And it says these words, which are, which are not totally clear, but does give some clarification. So Ephesians 4, 8, he says, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, talking about his ascension into heaven, okay, he led captivity captive. Those who are, that are in paradise weren't in their final abode they have been released and taken out. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, talking about spiritual gifts. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. When you look at commentaries, some people believe that this descended into the lower parts of the earth is talking about Jesus leaving his exalted place in heaven and simply coming to earth. Other people believe it is referring to him going down into the grave. And I believe that's what he's talking about here going into the grave, the lowest parts of the earth. So, with that stated, things that we do know, things that we do know, paradise is no longer in Abraham's bosom. Paradise is now in the third heaven, the third heaven. So paradise was moved to heaven. Paradise was moved to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 through 4. We know this to be true says this. Now, this is Paul speaking. He's talking about an out-of-body experience that he had. And he goes to the third heaven. I know a man 
in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. It was such an, an incredible experience. He doesn't know exactly what all happened. It was stark. It was amazing. But he doesn't know if he is in the body or out of the body. God knows such a one was caught up to the, oh, watch this, the third heaven, the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether the body or out of the body, I do not know. Second time he says that God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, before I put the next picture up, I want to explain something to you. Paul actually went to heaven, and he had an experience. Paul did not go on a book-writing tour about his experience in heaven. He didn't make a movie about his experience in heaven. He didn't make a lot of money on his experience in heaven, okay? But you know what Paul did when he got his experience in heaven? He got a thorn in the flesh, okay? And it says this in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure, it's so easy for us to be prideful. Oh, I went to heaven. Look what I saw. I was the one that was privileged to go there. No, no, God doesn't like pride, so he had to do something. To, even Paul, even Paul. You'd think we're, we, we deal with depravity? Even Paul has to get this thorn in the flesh. Was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. That thorn, when you look it up, it's a tent stake, an 18-inch spike. Whatever this thing was, nobody really knows. There's all kinds of postulates on it, but it was miserable. And what does he do? He prays three times for this thing to be taken from him. Three times, God, take this from me. God, take this from me. God, take this from me. And what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My, that's what he says to us sometimes. My grace is sufficient for you. And then he says this, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Now, how often do you hear this? I will boast in my infirmities. You know what infirmities is? Asthenia, extreme weakness, sickness. That's what that word actually means. Myasthenia gravitas, muscle weakness. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities. You can only do this with God. Only God can allow this to happen to you. In reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. And then he says for this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What a different paradigm that we hear today. And the health and the wealth, and you should have everything. Our God is gentle and he's gracious and he does heal and he does relieve suffering. Sometimes he doesn't. And we know that to be real. We know that to be honest. We know that to be honest. So we have a picture coming up here of the three heavens. Now notice it says here, God's throne is the third heaven. So that's the top one. God's throne is the third heaven. The second space is the second heaven. And the atmospheric heavens that we live in is called the first heaven. Now, this is the abode of God. This is where Paul went, the third heaven, okay? Keep that in mind. I want you to realize something. The second abode, the second place, the second place here, the second place, this area right here, the second heaven, I believe, is where Satan and the demonic realm primarily live. He was booted out of heaven. He lives basically here, the second heaven, but still has access to earth. And he's also called the, the, the prince and the power of the air and, and that sort of thing on earth. He has ruling authority on earth, but his basic place where these guys function is in the second heaven. Now, with that stated, the abode of Satan, the demonic realm, is the second heaven. Ephesians 2.2 2 says he's the prince and the power of the air. In Ephesians 6.12, remember we fight, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities in the, in, the, in the heavenly places, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of weakness in the heavenly places. And I believe that's the second heaven, the second heaven. And he actually has access to earth also. John 12, 31 says he's the prince of this world, temporary rule. Now, with this stated, think about this. Let's go back to our Luke 16, 22. Lazarus being escorted into the presence of God. If this postulate that I have given you is true, when someone dies down here, they are escorted by an angel through the second heaven, enemy territory, up to the third heaven. 
for they are with God. Isn't that an interesting thought? Now, the scripture doesn't actually say that, but I'm thinking, well, Lazarus had the angel escort. He's going from here to the third heaven, and he's passing through this area that's demonically controlled, the second heaven. Now, one of the things that, that gives you some credence to this is if you look at Daniel chapter 10, it has an interesting statement here. Daniel has a vision, and he's, he's lying prostrate from his, from his vision. He's lying on his face, and a hand touched me, and he starts to tremble, and he hears these words in verse 12. Then the angel said, then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. In that, I believe it's in that secondary area where they were doing spiritual warfare. Prayer has gone up, angel is released, and now there's the prince of Persia in that area causing the fight or causing the disruption. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, you want to know about archangels. Michael is an archangel. But notice that this gives you the only place in Scripture that gives you a clue that there's more than one archangel. It says one of the chief princes. So there must be more than one archangel. Don't know how many, but there must be more. It came to help me, for I had been left alone with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. So there seemed to be a struggle in the angelic realm, probably happening in that second, second heaven area. That's just a thought, just a thought. So that's what happens when he went down to the grave in Abraham's bosom. Those guys are set free. He said to the lost people in torment, you have rejected the redemptive price. To those people in torment, he says, you've rejected Christ's redemptive price. Your fate is sealed. Now hear this, because this is very important. Nowhere in Scripture are those in torment given a second chance or prayed out of torment. This is false teaching. Your time of testing is here and now. Is here and now. Believers make an eternal decision here and now. This is called your life. Seventy years, right now, your time of testing. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's so intense when the Spirit of God comes and opens your eyes. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Now is the day. 2 Corinthians 5.20, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be brought in right relationship to God. Do it now. It's always a pressure to do it now. This is your time. This is your time. Do it now. And then finally, dealing with the guys, with, with the demons in Tartarus, we have this. And I believe that this could have happened. Your fate is sealed. Your judgment is sure. There will be no satanic victory. You will not be released. You're going to stay in your prison until your final destiny, the lake of fire. Now, what we're going to talk about now is not a deduction, not an inference but the absolute word of God. So the previous things were deductions. This we know. Do not overlook the patience of God. God waited 120 years, 120 years for Noah to build the ark. He waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few eight souls were saved. 120 years. Look, at the ark is a picture of Christ picture of salvation, the patience of God. The ark is a picture of the patience of God. Remember God's heart. 1 Timothy 2.4, his desire is for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection changed everything and made all people savable but all people are not saved until they believe and receive the gift that God offers them. Okay, verse 21. Jesus Christ triumphant saved us. He saved us, verse 21. There is also an anti-type. The ark was a type, a picture. The anti-type is the real thing. Jesus Christ is the real thing, the anti-type, which now saves us. That would be Christ. And then he says baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, 
through the resurrection, talking about victory over the grave, victory over sin, of Jesus Christ. Now, some people have taken this verse to believe that this is another proof for baptismal regeneration. I don't think that's right. If so, if so, that would be a work that you would do in order to get to heaven. And we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So there's nothing that we bring to the table. Baptism is this. It's simply obedience to, the, to a command of God. So what is water baptism? It's the symbolic picture of the death of the old man and the resurrection to new life, living as a new man in Christ. The picture is you go down into the water, your old world goes down with you. Your old life goes down with you. Your old self goes down with you. And you're resurrected to newness of the new you. Now, listen to what Watchman Nee says. Watchman Nee was a missionary in China. Watch what he says. Anyone who has seen men turn to Christ in a pagan country know what tremendous issues are raised by baptism. An all-out commitment to Christ and the persecution that is sure to follow because you are telling that culture, I will follow Jesus, and it could cost you your life, it could cost you your family, it could cost you your job, it could cost you your home, it could cost you everything. It is not cheap. Salvation is not cheap. God paid a price, and throughout the world, people suffer immensely for being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because it's a public identification. In America, we poo-poo it. Oh, we don't need it for salvation. Well, you don't need it for salvation, but you do need it to be obedient to the Lord Jesus. Anybody that does not get baptized, is, and they know this, some people don't know it, and you know this, you're being disobedient to God. You're being disobedient. It's just that simple. Watchman Nee asks a great question. Watch this. If you would, and everybody should answer this question before they get baptized, this question. If you would continue in the old world, the old man, your old ways, why be baptized? If you're giving a public proclamation that you're a follower of Jesus, but going to continue in your old ways, why be baptized? That's a great word from Watchman Nee. You know, he was there where everything was on the line. There wasn't this cursory relationship with Christ. It was all in or not in. It was all in or not in. We have this little baby Christian mentality that I'll get a little bit in, I'll get a little bit warm, I'll get my foot in it. No, that's not what Christianity is. It's all in. You're immersed into Christ. Now, John Wolverd says this, As the flood wiped away the old sinful world, so baptism pictures one's break from his old sinful life and his entrance into a new life in Christ. Baptism is telling the world that I belong to Christ. And again, it's a big deal. When you got a billion Hindus that hate Christians and you get baptized in that culture, you're going to suffer. 1.5 billion Muslims. You get baptized in a Muslim country, you're going to suffer. In a communist country that are atheistic, you get baptized there, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. I believe that our text is not speaking about water baptism, as important as that is. I believe that it's speaking about spirit baptism, being immersed into Christ. All born again of the Spirit, the saved, are baptized into the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. How do I know that? Because this is a controversial thing. A lot of people believe in a second blessing or a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'll talk about that in just a second. But I want you to just track with me for just a second, if you would. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. If you would, open your Bible to that, and you might even make a note that I'm going to share with you in your Bible in that section that will help you. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is in the New King James Version. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into the body, into one body. We were all is a past tense phrase. It's actually written in the aorist tense, means it occurred one time in the past. 
So if you write A-O-R-I-S-T one time in the past, this has happened. It's a past tense. It's something that has happened. It's also written in the passive voice. The passive voice. Now, this is a little technical, I, I, I understand, but it's very important. It's written in the passive voice, meaning that the subject has received the action of the verb. The Holy Spirit has baptized the person into the body of Messiah. It has been done to you at the time that you were saved. It's not something that you've done. It happened the moment you were saved. Okay? So it's a finished work in the past, the moment you were saved. This is not talking about water baptism, or this text is not talking about a second blessing. Let me tell you what I believe about a second blessing. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe we have all of the Holy Spirit that we're ever going to get at the time of salvation. You have gotten all of the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. The problem is, is do I, have I submitted myself to the Holy Spirit? That's the question. I do not deny the need of the Holy Spirit empowering a believer for ministry or to live a separated life. That has to happen. You can't do this on your own. You must walk in the power of the Spirit. When you're born again, you have access to the Spirit of God, but you're a baby. Maybe you haven't accessed everything that is available to you through the Holy Spirit. Okay, just keep that in mind. I believe that as we mature, as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and the filling of the Holy Spirit means you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and oftentimes we use the word anointed by the Holy Spirit. All anointing means is empowered for service. Empowered for service. Every Christian, you have a spiritual gift. God has empowered you to use that spiritual gift for service. No one can say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. So we're anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission that God has given to us. All that is accomplished for Christ is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to yield to that power that is available to us. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, As each of you have received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We do nothing on our own power. We must tap into that power if we're going to be successful here. And it's available to every single Christian. Every single Christian. We are to walk victorious in this life. We are to be overcomers. Not to be trampled down by the conditions and situation of life, but to be overcomers. He's given us his spirit, the parakalitos. He comes alongside us. He's our comforter. Remember, the spirit of God indwells you. The spirit of God walks beside you. He's your comforter. The spirit of God comes epi, epi upon you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He gives you the ability to do whatever he's called you to do. He'll give you the power to do it. When you're thinking, I can't do that, I can't possibly do that, yes, the Spirit of God will give you his epi power, his authority to allow you to be able to accomplish the impossible. So finally in verse 22, Jesus Christ triumphant intercedes for us. He is our high priest, verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Subject to him. Never, ever forget, Jesus knows what you are going through. God is close to you. He's not distanced. He's not detached. He dwells in you. And as a matter of fact, there's a scripture that says that the whole Godhead dwells in you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells in you. There are scriptures that say this. Hebrews 4.15, Jesus knows, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Jesus knows what it's like here, yet was without sin. Jesus had three, three offices that he held, prophet, priest, and king. When he came to earth, he came as a prophet. He spoke the words of God to the people. That's what a prophet did. He died for the sins. He was our Savior. Now he is our high priest, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. He will come as our king, prophet, priest, and king. He's a soon-coming reigning king. 
Now, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we know that he has his priestly role. He intercedes for us. Watch this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's the whole desire for God is that you live a separated life, free, free from, the, from, the, from the sin curse and free from thinking that you have to live the way that you used to live. You do not have to live like you used to live. You do not. So that you may, may not sin. But, he's honest, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a parakalitos. That word is, again, a comforter with, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. Big, long word that just means God's wrath has been appeased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it's the propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So the salvation is available to the whole world, to the whole world. So, hear this. We are not powerless against sin. We are not powerless. We have the blessed Holy Spirit that give us the power to say no to the flesh, yes to the Spirit. Christ's high priestly ministry guarantees not only sympathy, but also acquittal from our sins. Isn't that amazing? And he's coming as the coming king. He's a soon coming king. I mean, like, it's right on the door. We are right on the precipice. I mean, we're just hanging right over the edge of Jesus coming back. I mean, it's the most exciting thing that you can ever think about. He's coming back, and you know what's going to happen? He's going to, he's, he's going to judge. He's going to make a judgment, and every knee will bow. Powers, principalities, angelic realms. Philippians 2.10 says this, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, when he comes, we're going to willingly, willingly bow before him. Lord Jesus, just like John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, fell at his feet as though he were dead. We willingly are going to do that. In the demonic realm, you're going to bow. You're going to bow to the Lord Jesus because he is so powerful compared to the demonic. There's nothing in comparison. It's not like there's a big battle between Satan and God. And they're on unequal footing. Oh, no. Oh, no. Our God is supreme. Satan has a, a, a leash that he has. He can do certain things for this epoch of time and no farther. He can only act within the parameters that God allows him to act in. This is our triumphant Christ. This is our high priest. This is our soon-coming king. This is the one that is going to come and rescue us. And what do we say? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And all I can say is hip, hip, hooray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Yes, conclusion. Our great hope is Jesus Christ triumphant. Jesus is triumphant over death. His resurrection proves it. Jesus is triumphant, is triumphant, has been proclaimed. He is our victor. The pronouncement has been made. The war has been won. Jesus triumphant saves us. He is our Savior. He's the only Savior of mankind. Jesus Christ triumphant intercedes for us. Intercedes for us. He is our high priest. He is our intercessor. When Satan, you know what he likes to do? He likes to accuse the brethren day and night, it says in Revelation 12, 12, 10. Or so. He accuses the brethren day and night. And what, what we have is our advocate is there, making intercession under the blood, under the blood, covered, sins covered. Can you imagine that dialogue for eternity? Covered, guilty, covered. No, he's not covered. We have an intercessor on our behalf. Many in the church today recite what is called the Apostles' Creed. The first known recording of the Apostles' Creed was written in 390 A.D. This was not quoted by the Apostles. This is the early church. And it talks about his triumphance. A portion of the Apostles' Creed reads this way. Now, Chuck Swindoll has made this comment on his treatise in 1 Peter. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty. That's how the Apostles' Creed starts out. When I was in a, in a different church, we said this every morning. Now, we say that cursory. You know, we said this just in matter of just saying it, okay? But if you listen to these words, I believe in God the Father Almighty. That belief is commit to, put your trust in, 
follow. That is what that's saying, and it's saying passionately, I commit to, I trust in, I follow Jesus. It's not just something that's just blown out. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And it says he descended into hell, and we know what that means now, at least hopefully we do. He descended into hell, and now he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And look at each of these statements is a priceless heirloom, Swindoll says, carefully handed down through the church, through the generations, through the ages. But the most important part of this creed is the phrase, I believe. I believe. I believe. That simple but sincere statement of faith makes all the difference in this world and the next. I believe. Our great hope is Jesus Christ triumphant. Oh, the King is coming. The King is coming. Okay. Hey, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the wonderful gift of eternal life that the Lord Jesus has given to us. And I thank you. I thank you that paradise has been emptied. I thank you that now, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. I thank you for the picture, the picture that you've given us in Luke, that when we take our last breath, we have an angel escort that takes us right into the presence of God. And it's almost like, Lord, I just, I just, I don't know if this is what it's going to be like, but I just picture this is as the escort is taking us into the presence of God, it's almost like you can hear the applause of heaven. Another one has come home. And that you embrace us on our entrance and you say, Welcome, you're home. You're home. It's all done. It's all done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Oh, Father, help us to fight the good fight. Help us to keep the faith. Help us to finish the race that has been set before us. And help us to be followers of the Lord Jesus, not hanger-oners, not barely in, but help us to be all out for you because, Lord, you were all out for us. Thank you again for this time to study the precious word of God. And, Lord, I pray that this was rightly divided today. There are a lot of deductions here that can be taken or left. But, Lord, I pray that your spirit will implant truth into each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.